I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Up next on The Trade Guys, we'll talk G7, Micron, and the conclusion of the first phase of the U.S.-Taiwan Initiative on 21st Century Trade, all on the next episode of The Trade Guys. Trade Guys, we're back in the saddle and it's time to talk G7. We had the G7 last week. Key question that I have for you is why are the G7 countries beginning to react all of a sudden more strongly to perceived economic coercion by the Chinese? Well, uh, yes, we're, we're glad to be reporting on uh, the G7 meetings. It's one of those things that if you're in a, involved in international economics, you tend to follow it. And the G7 has a long history, but it started on the econ side. It was only, it was not a leaders meeting. In fact, had a great name in the early days, back in, in 1973, when George Schultz was Secretary of the Treasury. He had a meeting with basically European finance ministers. And uh, President Nixon offered them the use of the White House for the meeting. So they met in the first floor library. So their original name was the Library Group which I think they ought to stick with today. <laughs> Usually by like da- downstairs on the first floor yes, of the White House? Yes, yeah. that was the first. That's a tiny that space. Is. But there were basically uh, five European finance ministers, uh, West Germany, UK, Italy, France, and then the United States. So it was a small group, but they, yeah, they, they fit all in the library there at the first floor. It was the library group for some time. In any case, hmm. it's still very focused on economics, but it, it now is a leaders' meeting. So uh, the main issue this time was the conflict in Ukraine. And what I found interesting, Andrew, uh, we'll get into China in a second, is that for a while we were considering whether the G7 was relevant to much of anything, whether it deserved to continue to exist in, in the world. And in many ways, the Ukraine conflict has given it new relevance because it's essentially, it, plus Japan is the econ side of, of NATO. And so uh, it's worth listening to, it's worth paying attention. They clearly were, were one of, they agreed to continued support, both financial support for Ukraine and uh, additional sanctions on Russia. And that's where the things got interesting because we have the good sanctions, which are the ones that the G7 has applied to Russia, and then we have the bad sanctions, which are economic coercion from China. <laughs> and so it's, it's, a, it's a situation that I think is worth reflecting on because in the multilateral system, you try to, you try to treat everybody fairly and you look for ways to, 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 to not offend each other. We're, we've gotten very much into a sort of a, a NATO first or US first policy, which China is responding with a China first policy. Now, there were important discussions had about how you sort of protect your critical supply chains uh, and or do you risk them as the economic coercion happens. But economic coercion is happening on both sides. One final thing they talked about, which we may not discuss today or we may, is the climate issues. And they're interesting in that 
the climate has had a much more reality-based conversation than it typically does, not so much on long-term goals, but on ensuring that things like food security and the sort of steps toward lower carbon, but still using hydrocarbons were included. Specifically, Germany and Japan made a point to continue to use natural gas, which is the least carbon footprint of any of, of the fossil fuels. So it's a, it's a good inter- intermediate step. That's how they're using it. Now, as Bill always puts it, there's these things are a conflict between the trade nerds and the climate geeks. The trade nerds want you know open markets and rules, and the climate geeks are saying, wait a minute, we got an emergency here. Forget the rules, we need to make new ones. And so since Bill and I are both trade nerds, <laughs> we, we, we tend to take a side. But I was, I was observed that the, the notion of including food security, which is vitally important if you're going to deliver on any of these carbon reductions, was part of the, the topic, which is sensible and realistic in, in my view. Well, and, and AI was also yes. a big topic at the G7. And I, I guess I wonder, are the G7 countries going to be able to sustain a discussion about AI? They've never been able to really sustain a discussion about cybersecurity, for instance. So how are they going to you know, increase their coordination efforts to tackle uh, Chinese economic coercion, Bill? Well, that was the part that intrigued me, that where they committed to do more work on that, which is a good thing. They weren't very specific about what they would do, which is sort of typical uh, for G7. I think if you're talking about AI in specific, this is a, everybody is seized with the problem, but nobody knows what to do about it. Right. There have been many conversations in the, just in the United States about how to deal with it here. And there is not a resolution. And it's, it strikes me as remarkable in the absence of, of concrete proposals. I mean, oftentimes when an issue bubbles up like this one is, you'll have people on, on a sharp division of opinion on two different sides, and then they go at it. Here's a case where I think nobody really knows what the right answer is. And it's they're struggling. We probably should spend a whole session on this at some point in the future and go into it more deeply. On the, the coercion issue more generally, it's also newly become a thing. You know, it didn't used to be anything that people but us trade wonks talk about. And it's become a thing because of the Chinese practice of it. And if you you know don't know what that means, talk to the Lithuanians, talk to the Australians, talk to the Koreans. The Chinese have made a, a practice of going after countries that don't tow their political line by using economic weapons. CSIS, to its credit, has been ahead of the curve on this and produced a really excellent study on this last March 21st. I'm blanking on the title of it, but I know it was March 21st, and you can find it on the website, that examines uh, economic coercion in China and spends a lot of time talking about how to respond to it. And the most interesting conclusion that is kind of at odds with what you're hearing from Congress these days is that retaliation may not be the best response. First of all, if you're a smaller country, it's not realistic because there's really nothing you can do that is that will offset the costs of what the Chinese may be doing to you. If you're a big country like we are, I think the paper concluded is still probably not the best idea. It creates a lot of costs on the people that are imposing the retaliation. And the paper instead recommends a, a strategy of deter and deflect. Yeah, just, just for our listeners, the, the title of the paper is 
deny, deflect, deter countering China's economic coercion. And it was by Matt Goodman and Matthew Reynolds, March 21st, 2023. There you go. Somebody's on top of the actual facts. This is great. Uh, (laughs) Just doing my job. Deny, deter, and deflect. The idea, uh, we don't have to go through the whole paper, but the idea is let's do some things to in advance to minimize the adverse impact of anything that they might do to us. Or This is really advice for every country, not just for the United States. Do some resilience-related things to be prepared should the Chinese uh, weaponize trade in, in your direction. And also the, thing, the, ta- the issue they tackled that I thought was most interesting is can we do some things essentially to compensate the victims? And can we take the, the industries that are targeted or the people that are targeted, whatever it ends up being, and can we provide some benefits to them to offset the harm that the Chinese are doing to them? And that's a very interesting idea. And the thought that that might actually be a better solution is, I think, is an important one. The, the Chinese are very good at trying to devise tactics that don't cost them very much and are expensive for the other side. And if you pursue a strategy that, first of all, makes it, that holds your guys harmless, which means the Chinese aren't going to uh, achieve their objectives, and if you can find ways to up their costs, that's a much better way to deter it. For sure. Aside from statements on the PRC's economic statecraft, what are the other made trade takeaways from this G7 summit? Well, there was a, obviously a re, an effort to continue to work together on Ukraine. And I thought that the way they handled the climate issues was very consistent with keeping on a sound economic footing. So I think when you look at this holistically, what you had was a leaders meeting, but it focused on the realistic ways of moving forward on the key issues they've been talking about for several years. So I didn't, didn't see any major pitfalls. Bill, perhaps I missed something. No, I wouldn't say pitfalls. I, I think the other thing that they got into, which was constructive, was focusing on supply chains and also semiconductor and infrastructure funding, which is going to be an important issue. I was reading a, a monograph about that th- th- this morning. You know, we are investing, what is it, $52 billion in uh, semiconductor development. The EU is investing 43 billion euros. The UK yesterday announced a billion dollar program. And one of the concerns, you know, these are all, we're talking G7 here. The Japanese are having discussions internally on what they're going to do. And there's a real possibility here that all of these entities are going to end up financing from taxpayers' money the same thing. So that we're going to be creating companies that are going to be competing with each other rather than companies that are going to be competing uh, with China. And if you look at the the supply chains in the sector, and they're extraordinarily complicated, but there are countries that lead. The U.S. is a design center. We do other things, but we we are a good design leader, uh, as is the U.K. Japan has a lot of production. Korea, which is not in the G7, has a lot of production. So does Taiwan. Uh, the Europeans have some production as well. Other places lead in assembly, testing, and packaging, which is the, the back end of the process. There's a fear, I think, growing that all this money may end up with each of these entities, the EU, the United States, the UK, and Japan, each trying to capture the entire supply chain. 
which would be enormously inefficient and uh, creating unnecessarily trying to create redundant capabilities that already exist. And the UK appears to recognize this because their new program, which is much more modest uh, in, in a billion pounds, I think it is, focuses on, on their strengths, which are design. But uh, there's a danger here that we're going to, everybody's going to try to reinvent the wheel. And the result is we're going to have too many wheels and they're going to end up basically competing with each other. So the agreement to try to develop joint action on this, I think in the long run will be important if they actually meet on it and have discussions. And if the various entities here, EU, US, Japan, and UK, are prepared actually to work together and produce funding that is synergistic rather than competing. Okay, guys, let's move on and talk about China banning Micron from infrastructure projects. So what about this? I mean, does China's ban endanger U.S. semiconductor production capabilities at large? No, not really. I think, first of all, I mean, everybody believes this is, this is simply retaliation. This is, these are memory. For the CHIPS Act. No, for the export controls. Export uh, controls, yeah, particularly on, on, uh, on them. On uh, Huawei. Memory Started chips with are, Huawei. Uh, Got these, it. Are, these are all memory chips, uh, which are not really uh, at the center of a discussion about security capabilities or military capabilities. It's purely retaliation. Uh, at the same time, you know, to be fair about it, they have something to retaliate against. <laughs> we took the action here. We significantly tightened our export controls in ways that are going to, I think, uh, at least in the short run, significantly damage the uh, the Chinese industry. So it's not like they just made it up and and lashed out. You know, they were res- they were responding, and we shouldn't we shouldn't forget that. Uh, on your question, they were care. This is classic Chinese. They were careful in their phrasing. They are restricting uh, the micron chips for those entities that are engaged in critical infrastructure information projects. That's a small subset in China. Most of the micron chips go to consumer goods, games, phones, things like that. And it appears so far that they will not be affected by what the Chinese have done. So I don't see a huge impact. I mean, it's not positive for micron, but I don't see a huge impact on micron. uh, And I don't see a huge impact on the industry as a whole. Now, Bill, Bill just mentioned in the previous segment about the risks of overinvesting in a sector and taking what's a, a leading edge technology and making it a low margin technology because of overcapacity. Well, it turns out in that segment of the chip market, the DRAM chip or digital random access memory, it has been subject to overinvestment over the years and tends to be, it's certainly not the leading edge. Uh, it's, a, it's a workhorse chip. It's useful in a lot of products, uh, consumer products in particular, but nobody makes DRAM chips on the leading edge. That's not the thing where the technology is so sophisticated, we're careful to protect it. Micron is a direct competitor with two Korean companies, in this case, Samsung and SK Hynix, which which all compete in the same space. It's not a hugely profitable business, but then again, Micron's market share in China is not a big part of their business. It's about 10% of their total volume. So will this hurt Micron at the margins? Yes. But it's, uh, as Bill mentioned, it's somewhat of a surgical strike by China. There's a message in there. 
that two can play at this game. The, the policy question that we're going to grapple with now, though, is uh, will the Korean companies backfill? Yes. Now that the Micron chips are being X'd out, uh, will Samsung and, and uh, SK Hynix attempt to fill that gap, which would essentially hold the Chinese harmless for their own their own actions? I don't think the answer to that is clear. The Korean government seems to be indicating it will defer to the companies. Um, I think the U.S. view has been, I'm sure they're making this representation to the companies and the government, is that they should not they should not backfill and leave the Chinese short of chips. So. Can the United States work with allies to address these distortions of the market? Well, that's what the G7 was about. Yeah. I think the answer is yeah, potentially yes. And they said they intend to do that. What remains to be seen is, is how they'll operationalize that and actually turn it into concrete actions. And what do you think it means for U.S.-China relations in general? Is this just routine? or What, what is this? Well, it's one more you know, negative thing that, that kind of poisons the well. And we've talked about this, this the whack-a-mole problem of every month something pops up. We mm-hmm. we had the balloons, uh, we had TikTok, we had the cranes. I think we talked about the crane two weeks ago. Uh, we had the farmland issue. And now we have this. Members of Congress are frothing at the mouth about this and attacking what the Chinese have done and claiming there's no reason for it and it's outrageous. And uh, the rhetoric is flying fast. You know, I I can't get that excited about it because, in a sense, we started it. So mm-hmm. I don't know that anybody should be surprised that we did it. But it just the relationship is kind of spiraling downwards. And this is just one more element of it. Now, there was a meeting today with between Ambassador Tai and the Chinese Commerce Minister, Wang Wentao. And it sounds, uh, I think we'll get a fuller report later because this just happened uh, earlier today. But it sounds like in that meeting, and in the meeting that the Commerce Minister had with Secretary Raimondo last night, a lot of talking past each other, each side complaining about what the other side is doing. They're complaining about our sanctions. They're complaining about our controls. We're complaining about their non-market economy tactics. I mean, it's sort of same old complaints. We've been talking back and forth about this for 10, 15 years. Nothing's changing. Well, it looks to me like Pink Floyd was right again. All in all, just another brick in the wall. <laughs> there you go, Scott. Really good one. And that, that was sort of an unexcited rant by Bill. Yes. Well, he said he couldn't get excited about it, so it was kind of like an unexcited sorry, rant. It's a, it's a holiday weekend, you know. We get we get those once in a while. So Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the US and Taiwan. Um what did the United States and Taiwan just agree to with the conclusion of the first phase? of the U.S.-Taiwan initiative on 21st century trade? Well, they, to make a, a, a probably uh, an inapt, uh, not inapt, but inapt analogy, it's like they completed phase one, okay? They completed an agreement uh, that covers customs and border procedures, regulatory practices, small business issues, and I think anti-corruption. Yes, that's right. What is left are the tougher issues, agriculture, which is always difficult, including with Taiwan, digital trade, labor and environmental standards, state-owned enterprises, non-market policies and practices. We had a closed meeting here with the Taiwanese negotiator a couple of weeks ago, and 
it, it, it opened and actually closed. It was interesting and unexpected with a lecture on pineapples. Apparently, we don't let their pineapples in. Okay, because we have our own pineapples. Well, right? apparently, according to them, they have the best pineapples in the world. I think Hawaiians would disagree. I think so too. When I, we didn't, we did not get into a pineapple fight about this. But it was clear that there are agriculture barriers that we have that they would like to break down. And they pointed out that the biggest one that we've been complaining to them about for years, which is the ractopamine issue, their ban on hormone uh, growth chemical, they removed that a couple years ago. So uh, that, in a way, that's sort of what enabled this negotiation to take place because the U.S. had always been reluctant to enter into a negotiation as long as the ractopamine ban was was there. And, and now it's gone. So here we are. But they didn't address that in this in this phase one part. They didn't address agriculture. And the other thing that intrigued me that I just thought was fascinating when we met with these guys, it was not just the trade negotiator, but he brought a huge delegation of Taiwanese businessmen to town. It was during the week of the Invest in U.S. conference that the Commerce Department puts on annually. And one of the companies in the room started talking about tariffs. And the administration is saying, you know, tariffs don't matter anymore. The U.S. tariffs, uh, average tariffs, only 2%. And we're not doing tariffs. And this guy pointed out that what he makes is uh, chemicals that are integral to the manufacture of chips. They go into the semiconductor manufacturing process. And he pointed out that if TSMC, the Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturing company, which is a world leader, if they're going to build a factory here, they're going to be importing his chemicals from Taiwan, and there's going to be tariffs on them, and that's going to be an obstacle to getting this plant off the ground. And I thought, you know, excellent example of what several of us have been talking about for months. You know, the average tariff may be, sm- may be small, but they still matter, and they still make a difference, and they're not on the table. They were not dealt with in this most recent agreement. They're not going to be in the next phase either. Yeah, tariffs can be a problem when the when the rate is high, but they can also be a problem when the rate isn't high, but the volume is high. So, and what you have, this is the chemical trade is a classic for this, which is there was during the the what we call the Uruguay round. So during the late eighties, early nineties, there was a major push for what was called chemicals harmonization, and that was to lower everybody's tariffs to around five and a half or six and a half percent. Those were the two rates. And that was a big accomplishment at the time. But the problem is we haven't gone any further since then, except in our free trade agreements. So chemicals from Mexico, zero tariff. Chemicals from Canada, zero tariff. Chemicals from Australia, zero tariff. Chemicals from Taiwan, 5.5%. And on large volumes, that's a, that's a cost disadvantage that the company's got to find somewhere else in its economics to make the whole investment make sense. So yeah, tariffs can still be a problem, and I'm glad he mentioned it because that's a good way to to help the administration sort of recalibrate about what's important, what's not. Obviously, we've got a long way to go in this negotiation, but I was intrigued that that despite the fact we're only at phase one and we only just got started, that this is upsetting China, that somehow we've gone too far, or this is well, you knew that was going to happen. I mean, that, it would be upsetting, I would, but I. Yes, I, and I'm sure it will keep happening. And I, but I remembered back in our early days of free trade agreements, we had a U.S. trade representative named Bill Brock, 
uh, worked for 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 President Reagan. And Bill Brock the neg- great negotiated Bill Brock, our our former colleague, CSIS trustee, a great man, and our and our late friend, a great man, and he was negotiating an agreement with Israel, and the Egyptians complained, and he convinced President Reagan to extend on identical terms a free trade agreement with Egypt. So once we wrap things up with Israel, they they basically here's the document we'll substitute. Israel for Egypt, sign here, and you can have exactly the terms they have. Egypt said, oh, we'll think about it. And they still still don't have the agreement. But it was a very effective counter. And if all we're going to talk about are things like this, the good government side, like anti-corruption, there's some probably some things we'd like from China. And if they complain too much, maybe offer them the same deal. Sign here. What do you think? Bad move on Egypt's part. Well, yes, it was. Well, you it was know, short-sighted. I, yeah, but it just reminds me that they... George W. Bush tried to get on that and actually initiated a negotiation with Egypt. And I, I, I had a classic conversation at one point with Egypt's trade minister who was in town. It was sort of, I think, a classic Egyptian. He said, well, you know, this is simple. You know, we sign first, then we negotiate. <laughs> and I said, I thought, you know, usually the Americans do it the other way around. Right. You know, we yeah. negotiate first, yeah. and then when we're satisfied, we sign. That was not the Egyptian approach. So... Uh, and there's no agreement. Which- but uh, it, would, it stopped the complaints back uh, when when Senator Brock was Ambassador Brock. So uh, oh, I sure think, you know, on, on Taiwan, just to close that off, they say they're going to finish by the end of the year. And I am inclined to believe them on this. You know, I, 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 when this all came out, you know, they wanted to be part of IPATH. And I think that was largely mm-hmm. because they wanted the status of being like a recognized country that was going to be part of this large multilateral thing. And that was not able to happen. So they get, basically, they're doing the same thing on the side. I told them, in a way, I think they get a better deal because I think the United States is disposed to be helpful to them right now, mm-hmm. particularly because of the pressure they're under from the Chinese. Yeah. And I think they're going to walk away with a good deal. And my guess is they're going to walk away with it this year. That would be great. And uh, to your point, we're no longer fighting about pork, uh, which is where rectopamine is used to make the pork leaner. And this would be great benefits to the United States economy, correct? Well, it would be some benefit. Uh, and it would, it would catch the administration doing something right on trade, which the trade guys would love to do. Trade guys would love to have that discussion. Well, until next week, guys, it's been great as always. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful Memorial Day weekend. You too. Take care. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.